Perhaps you could turn back in the Word of God tonight to the Gospel of John and to the chapter 19, Gospel of John, the 19th chapter. I'd like to thank Tommy for singing and before that Sammy for making the announcements. I'd like to thank as well all of those who were able to travel to Lurgan on Thursday evening past. That was for the LTBS recording. Doesn't really crop up that often, maybe once every four or five years. And I know uh, that those that were in charge of LTBS on Thursday night were very encouraged by the numbers that came. In fact, they had to bring two extra pews in, so that was good. And thank you indeed for taking the time and effort, those that were able to come on Thursday. We're looking at John chapter 19. And the verse 30. When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. Again, with the word of God open before us, we'll bow together in prayer. Ask the Lord for his help on the preaching of the word tonight. Our gracious Father, we once again look to Thee for Thy help and for Thy tender mercy to come our way. We cannot. We cannot deliver our souls in the way we should unless Thy Spirit will help, unless He brings conviction onto the human heart. Preacher's words are pretty much vain unless thou wilt take the truth that we are tasked with presenting and apply that truth presented unto our mind and our conscience. And Lord, we know today people need the Lord. There are so many that think they're getting by through their own efforts. So many in every day and generation that imagine no matter what preaching they hear, no matter how much the sacrificial death of Christ is emphasized and explained, that it all just comes back to them as, well, that might be one way. But surely there's another way. And the other way is largely about me, about what I am doing and what I haven't done, and what I plan to do. And surely, even though God sent His Son to die, He won't ignore what I have done. But Lord, we know from Old Testament through New Testament, and every time God speaks on this subject, He tells us that our righteousnesses, the best things we do, or in his eyes, filthy rags. That's not what he is looking for. He tells us expressly, it is not of works, lest any man should boast. He tells us, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. And so the work is all his. Help us, Lord, to lay down down the arms of our effort in trying to save ourselves 
and throw ourselves entirely into the arms of a strong Savior who is able to save not only effectively, but eternally. Come and speak the word to our heart and mind tonight, and there may be no blessing continued through this meeting. In our Savior's name we pray. Amen. Reverend William Hay Aiken was an English preacher and evangelist primarily, and lived in the dates there, 1841 through 1927. He was born in Liverpool, but if you're ever in Norwich, in Norwich Cathedral grounds, you'll find that Hay Aiken is buried there. He wrote quite a number of books, and some of the sermons appeared in certain of those books, and one of the most popular would have been a book called Mission Sermons. He'd been preaching for a couple of weeks in one of England's towns, and he had fulfilled his schedule, and he was set to leave the next day on the Monday. But about an hour before he left, there was a knock on the door of the clergyman's house that he'd been staying with. The door, when it was opened, a young man was standing there, and he asked the question, Is Mr. Aiken here? Yes, the answer was, please come in. Now, Reverend Aiken didn't know at the time who the visitor was. He quickly found out. It turned out that the father of the young man had been a preacher himself and had ensured that a son had reached a good position in life. But because of neglect and because of his sinfulness, that son had lost the high station his father had helped him into. He had run away to the city of Paris, and like the prodigal, he had ruined himself. The father had followed him. He found him down in the slums of that city of Paris, brought him back home again, but the young man now was in a much lower post than he had been formerly. Something like this conversation then took place between the young man and the evangelist Reverend W. Hay Aiken. Mr. Aiken, he said, I've walked eight miles this morning just to see you, because last night I heard you preach, and in the course of the preaching, I think you said that when God's Spirit begins to strive with a man or a woman, and he keeps striving, and we kick back, and we're resisting that Spirit, the less likelihood, as time goes on, the less likelihood there is of us being saved. And the preacher said, well, yes, that's what I said. God's Spirit, the young man said, has been striving with me again. And he's striving with me right now. He was striving with me on the way to you today because I was thinking about what you'd been preaching last night. And I fear that unless I'm saved soon, then I might never be saved. And I want to know, will God save me? The preacher said, well, I'm sure that God is willing to save you through the one way which is Jesus Christ alone. But before we talk further, my friend, let's kneel down and ask God to guide and to teach us. Then, getting up off their knees, Reverend Aiken said, I want to ask you two questions. One question is, do you see that when Christ died upon the cross, he suffered everything, paid all that was needed to atone for all your sins, that his work is finished, not half finished, and that when you get to his death, you get a full atonement 
for your sins. You don't need to eke it out by doing anything to atone for your own sins. Do you see that? Oh yes, Mr. Aiken, I see that very well. In fact, my father used to preach the very same message, and I heard it time without number. I understand about Christ's finished work. Well, I hope you do, he said. Now for the second question. Are you willing, as you are, just a poor, wicked, hell-deserving, unfeeling, hopeless sinner, are you willing, as this poor sinner, to take Christ's finished work offered to you as yours. Remember, he said, he's right here beside you. He's offering the benefits of his death to you. Are you willing to go to heaven as a poor sinner, relying only on Christ and his work, to be like a beggar, nothing of yourself, but depending entirely on him? And after a pause, the reply came back, well, I think I am, but I don't feel any different, Mr. Aiken. I wasn't asking you what you feel, but what you mean. Do you mean this? Are you willing for this? Will you take Christ's death as the full and finished atonement for your sins, and do you rely entirely for your pardon and ultimately for heaven on Christ's finished work. Are you willing to take this? After another pause, he says, well, I think I am, but still I don't feel the slightest bit different yet. The preacher, he had seen all of this before, as you do, and he said, my young friend, I wish you'd set your feelings to one side for a while. I'll ask you the same two questions over again. And again, the young man answered yes to the first one. At the end of the second, he said, yes, by the grace of God, I am willing to be a poor sinner depending only upon Christ. Well, about those feelings of yours, Reverend Aiken said, you are a poor, wicked, hell-deserving sinner. We all must acknowledge we are that before God. You're depending entirely for your salvation upon the Lord Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. Then he asked him a question, where would any condemnation against you now come from? Can the devil condemn a poor sinner depending on Christ? No, the young man said. Now, young friend, you can look up. Can God, will God, will he condemn a poor sinner depending entirely for salvation on Christ and on his cross? Can he condemn him? Will he condemn him? And after another pause, the young man said, I see it. I see it. There is no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus depending on his finished work, not depending on anything of their own, and saying, I take thee today as my Savior. This young man had finally realized what many of us are so slow to get to, that salvation does not depend upon our feelings. But I don't feel I'm saved, and I don't feel this, and I don't feel this and feel that. How many times have you heard that talking to souls? They'll say, but it's my feelings. But it doesn't depend on that. 
what it does depend on, your salvation and mine, on the finished work of Jesus Christ. And that is what makes all the difference. Now, so this evening in the meeting, have you seen this? Have you realized this? Have you been convinced of this? That salvation, it isn't an issue of perking up and cranking up your feelings, but it is an issue that is centered on the perfectly finished sacrifice of the only appointed Savior of men. We've taken our text in this light tonight. John 19, the verse 30. When Jesus, therefore, had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. Notice, first of all, the finality, the finished work of Christ, the finality about the work of Christ. And here's the baseline, the foundation that we put in Christ's work is finished. The work for our salvation is complete. Back hundreds of years before Christ ever came to go to the cross, Daniel picked up his pen and he wrote that when Christ would come, Daniel 9 verse 24, he would finish the transgression and make an end of sins and bring in everlasting righteousness. On that night before he was crucified, before enduring this extreme anguish of the cross, before going to sweat those great blood-like drops upon the ground of Gethsemane's garden, our Lord stated in prayer in John 17 in the verse 4, Father, I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. He had completed that work. He lived a life of perfect obedience. And now he was going to the cross to die a life of full atonement. He had fulfilled the law of God in each one of its strict demands. He had made that law honorable. And so on the cross, he could cry in the words of our text tonight, It is finished. And he's saying to all around, I have accomplished the grand work of atonement. I have provided a covering for those sins that Sinners have committed and they come and trust in me. There will be a covering for that sin. I have paid the price, not partially, but in full for human guilt. I have completely satisfied all the demands of my Father. You can write under it in this ledger here, it is finished. Nothing more to do. Now, if you're to find that very clearly taught in the Word of God, you'll find it all through Scripture, but there's a great emphasis on it in the book of Hebrews. And within the course of a few chapters there, beginning in chapter 7 and going through to chapter 10 in the book of Hebrews, the author is underlining this point again and again. In fact, on Lunes and seven occasions, he is telling us Christ died once. And the meaning behind the word once is once and for all. It's done, and it won't have to be repeated again. It's why when people are saying we are offering Christ up on our altar, we are saying, no, you're not. We do it daily. No, you don't. It's a travesty and a mockery in which you engage. It's not a sacrifice. This sacrifice was done 
once on Calvary, and it's once and for all. Where do we find it? Hebrews 7, 27. We find it in Hebrews 9, the verse 12, 26, 28. We find it again next chapter, Hebrews 10, verse 10, verse 12, and the verse 14, the seven references. We have them there. And so that's why we sing free from the law, happy condition. Jesus has bled. There is remission. Cursed by the law, bruised by the fall, Christ has redeemed us once for all. Now, how do we know the work is finished? How can we tell with the highest degree of satisfaction it's done and we have nothing to do in adding to it the resurrection of the Savior? The fact that he rose from the dead, that he ascended up on high, that he's in the heavenly places interceding for all of his people, that he sat down on the throne of glory proves that he has completed the task of redemption. If God had not been satisfied with the Savior's death as that full and entire atonement for sinners, he wouldn't have raised him from the dead. Christ would still be moldering in the grave. It's as simple as that. But as we sing... Up from that grave he arose, with a mighty triumph on his foes. It is God's evidence that he is satisfied, oh so satisfied, with what Jesus has done on our behalf. The author of a book, Pardon for Sin, Assurance with God, William J. Patton, put it like this. Christ's death was the payment of our debt. Christ's resurrection and sitting down in heaven are God's stamped receipt that the payment is made and is sufficient. That's assuring. That cheers my heart. That is so tremendous that he has completed it all and the resurrection is the receipt of a finished work. Then as well we have the recognition of the sinner. I pray that every unconverted soul would take time. Like that young man to William Hay Aiken that came knocking in the door to find him, have a concerned chat with that evangelist that day, that every sinner would take time to think that since Christ has paid the full debt of my sin, since he has borne the complete punishment that was due to it, since God has raised him from the dead, indicating clearly he has pleasure in all that his son has done, then I have nothing to do to atone for my own sins. I don't need to be coming bringing my tears as payment and my prayers as payment and my penances as payment and my sufferings as payment and my works as payment and my righteous acts and my charitable deeds as payment. There is nothing left for me to pay if Jesus has truly paid it all. See, it's Spurgeon, former Baptist preacher, tells the story of a conversation he had one day with a boatman. Spurgeon was on holiday. And always trying to get a word of witness in, he asked the boatman how he expected to get to heaven. The boatman said what many people still say today, I expect to go to heaven by, by saying my prayers, by going to church, by doing the best I can. 
Is that what you're trusting in, Spurgeon asked? Well, yeah, that's it. I do pray. I do attend church. I do the best I can. Don't offend, don't hurt anyone. That's what I'm trusting in for heaven. And Spurgeon gave him a line that made him really think. So he said, as far as you are concerned, Christ need not have come, for you're doing it all yourself. Why would God send his son? Why would he sacrifice the darling of his bosom? Why would he take the eternal son full of purity and holiness and put him on a cross? If we can do for ourselves the work that Jesus did on Calvary. In the life of Robert Haldean, Scottish preacher, we're told of a Unitarian minister who had argued with that Scottish preacher, and he was on holiday. You'd be thinking ministers do nothing but take holidays. He ended up in France here. And the two of them over breakfast and taking a few walks together as well. Mr. Haldean was trying to show the Unitarian how Christ's death was enough of an atonement for his sins, that it was offered to him freely as a gift, and that the moment that he took it, a full, finished atonement for his sins was right on his account. He didn't get to pay anything himself. It wasn't a half payment that our Savior did. It wasn't a third of a payment. It wasn't a three quarters of a payment. It wasn't a 999 pounds out of a thousand pounds that had to be put down kind of a payment. It was a full, entire, complete payment. And the Unitarian answered stoutly and repeatedly against that. But finally, on the Friday... They began to walk together, and that day Mr. Haldean began to talk through the words of our text, our Savior's cry from Calvary, it is finished. And he dwelt on the value of Christ's death and his love and offering that death to sinners and his invitation to those sinners to accept it. And as he went on, the Unitarian stopped in the road, and he stood silently for a moment, and then looking at Mr. Haldean, he said, it is too good. It is too good. But God's Spirit showed him something of the meaning of these words that we are looking at tonight. It is finished. And he went home to preach the glad tidings of pardon from everything, for nothing, through the finished work of Christ. And let me ask you, have you seen this truth in all of its brilliance? Has it gripped your heart? Have you been convinced as the poet was, nothing, either great or small, nothing sinner knew, Jesus did it, did it all, long, long ago, it is finished, yes indeed, finished every jot, sinner, this is all you need, tell me, is it not? The work of Christ and finality. It is finished. So the finality about the work of Christ. Secondly, the faith in the work of Christ. The faith in the work of Christ. The fact that salvation is offered through Christ means all provision has already been made. It's there for us, right in front of our eyes, revealed in Scripture, God's merciful revelation to our hearts. It's all here for us. What do I have to do? All I have to do is with my empty hands of faith, reach forward, claim it mine, 
Take it as mine, lean upon it with all of my weight, and come and receive the blessings of this salvation in my own heart. Let's take some Bible examples that should illustrate the point. There's an ark that's being built by Noah, and a flood is coming, a global catastrophe. And after 120 years of hard labor, the ark is complete. All provisions are there, designed and carried out exactly to God's blueprint. But Noah and his family had to step into the ark and allow God to close the door. Had they not stepped in, then, like everyone else, they would have perished. What a difference when they stepped in. What drama when the Lord shut them in. It was just a step. But God had told them that step had to be taken. On that night in Egypt, another illustration. The night of the Exodus, when the blood of the Lamb had been slain, faith again was required. Faith to trust God that when this blood of the Lamb is taken and splashed onto the doorpost and the lintel of my house, and we know that the avenging angel is coming around tonight, faith to believe God's Word is true. His instructions are right. We will be spared. And when that death angel comes along, he will put a sword in his sheath. When he comes to our house, no desire to punish, and we will be free. Theoth, in God's way, was required. The burnt offering in Old Testament times. Read about it in Leviticus 1 and verse 4 and other places. And it said there that he shall put his hand upon the head of the burnt offering and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for his sin. And so the offerer had to take his hand, lay it on the head of the sacrifice. And that is indicating I am relying on this sacrifice for me. I am depending upon the merit of the sacrifice. And he leaned upon it, and he expressed his faith in it. And the Bible tells you and I, that's what we do with the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. John 3 and 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. A couple of verses on. In John 3 and 18, these words appear, He that believeth on him is not condemned. John 3 and 36, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. And then that wonderful verse in Acts 16 to verse 31, And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Stop believing, in other words, in yourself. Your methods, your way, your ingenuity, your intelligence, your devisings. Stop all of that and believe on Christ alone. Rest your whole weight on Jesus Christ. A slight frost had covered the lake with a covering of ice. Schoolboys, you can imagine they're standing on the edge there and they have skates slung over their shoulders and they're just real keen to get out on the ice. But the question that they were all asking was, will it bear our weight? And nobody knew. 
And nobody seemed willing to risk it either, but a tall, strong farmer came along, and he ran right out onto the ice, slid right across, right near to the other side, and they all looked at each other. It bears, it carries his weight, it'll certainly carry ours, and off they went. They ventured forward, they proved its strength, defining faith. The Westminster Shorter Catechism asks the question what faith in Jesus Christ is, answers that. Number 86 in the Catechism, faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon Him alone for salvation as He is offered to us in the gospel. The hymn writer said, even now by faith I claim Him mine, the risen Son of God, redemption. By his death I find, and cleansing through the blood, Ephesians 2 and 8, for by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. And so we are looking tonight at the finality about the work of Christ, the faith in the work of Christ, and finally the freeness of the work of Christ, the freeness of the work of Christ. Like that young lad that came to the door of the evangelist, and the second question was all about, is it for me? Can I launch out on solid ground here? Will I be cast adrift? Will my feelings testify otherwise? God permits you, a poor sinner, just as you are, to take Christ's death as a full payment of your sins. What does John 6 and 37 say? Him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. All that the Father giveth me, the first part of the verse, shall come to me. And him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. And that includes all of those burdened souls stirred by his Spirit that come running to Christ and say, Lord, save me, I perish. Surely that will mean you, rich or poor, young or old, learned or ignorant, moral or immoral, feeling or unfeeling, hard-hearted or soft-hearted, no matter who you are, where you're coming from, whatever the background, come to Christ and he will not, if you come to him, cast you out. Did ever anyone truly come to Jesus Christ? Do it honestly, come sincerely, come believingly, come crying, Lord, I need thee to cleanse my sins away, only to be told by Christ, hold on a minute, no, I won't do it. It's never happened, it never shall happen, but I assure you, if the devil knew of one instance, just one, of a poor sinner struggling under the weight of a sin, coming to Christ and pleading with him and saying, Lord, take me in and save me. He'd have it broadcasted all over the place. This Savior, he works for some, but he doesn't work for others. You needn't fear that. God permits you to come, and he prompts you to come as well. Prompts you to come. Not only does he allow you to approach Christ, he positively invites you to come to Christ. Revelation 22 and verse 17, ending the book practically, we have this invitation thrown out, whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. And that's after a treble call to him, come in the same chapter. He permits you. He prompts you. We sing from time to time the words, come to the Savior. Make no delay. 
Here in his word, he has shown us the way here in our midst. He's standing today, tenderly saying, come, prompts you to come, as well as permits you to come. And more than that, bringing it up another level, he prescribes for you to come. He commands you to take Christ as your Savior. He closes you into this one thing. Doesn't give you an option. There's no alternative. There's no back door into heaven. There's no alternative route that you can take that'll be just as good. He doesn't open any other way or any other door. He says, I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved. I am the way. No man cometh unto the Father, but by me it is just one way. And in John 6, verse 28 and 29, we have these words. They said unto him, What shall we do that we might work the works of God? Jesus answered and said unto them, This is the work of God, that ye believe on him whom he has sent. In 1 John 3 and 23, this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of a son, Jesus Christ. The foreman of an English company We'd often heard the gospel, but he was afraid that, well, I've no right and I've no warrant to come to Jesus Christ. I can't just stand her up because, you know, I'm a terrible sinner. But his boss, the boss was a Christian, sent him a card. And it came onto his table one of those days. And it said simply, come to my house immediately after work. And so the foreman appeared at the door of the boss's home, and the boss came out, and he looked at him as much as, what are you doing here? And he answered him rather roughly, and he said, what do you want, John, troubling me at this time? Work's over. Why are you at my door following me home from work? Sir, he said, I had a card from you telling me that I was to come after work. Do you mean to say that you've come to my house, called on me out of business hours just because you have a card from me? Well, the foreman replied, I I don't understand you at all. But it seems to me if you sent for me and I got the card from you, your signature, that then I had a right to come. Come in, John, said the boss. I have another message that I want to read to you. And he read of Matthew 11, the verse 28, where Jesus is saying, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And the foreman saw that he had the best authority for coming to Christ with his sins because Christ had commanded him to do so. He had the cart. He had the book. He had the promise of God. And the same is true for you. To refuse is disobedience. To refuse is disaster. To refuse is destruction. Because in John 3 we're told, He that believeth not shall be damned. In other words, if we don't believe in Christ and receive His finished work, there's no other way. No other route to heaven. God has gone to the extreme to open the door for you and I. And having gone to the extreme, he not let us crawl in by some way that we think is an easy way of our own devising. It is sweet to know 
as I onward go, that the way of the cross leads home.